Horror Spin on Your Podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where Jess puts down her knitting needles and Kelly steps away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. And happy holidays, horror fans. On this episode, we are deciding to have some fun with introducing part one of a three-part series on the big three horror franchises, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, and Friday the 13th. We will discuss these iconic slashers and have an analysis of the variations of Final Girls and the women of the series. We are kicking off with a discussion of the Nightmare on Elm Street series movies 1 through 5. So pick your poison and listen on if you dare. So initially we had planned just to do a fun 80s kind of horror month and then Jess came up with this really wonderful idea to do this three-part series on the big three uh, horror franchises. Like she said, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, and Friday the 13th. We've had some heavy, heavy months. Yeah, for sure. And we just wanted to kind of end the year and cap off, you know, the starting, the six months starting of our project with something super fun like 80s horror. Yeah, and it was a great month in the sense of being able to revisit these films again, but also in revisiting these films, a lot of these movies have a lot of fun 80s music to them, and that's one of the things I love about 80s horror films is the music a lot of the times. And so this month, Kelly and I created a YouTube channel and a Spotify playlist with these 80s uh, tracks and tunes. So check them out. We've been posting them all over our Facebook and social media. Really fun to have a good time. So, Nightmare on Elm Street. We're not gonna go through the full synopsis of one through five because we feel like if you haven't seen any of the Nightmare on Elm Street series movies or know who Freddy Krueger is, I don't know, we can't can't really help you there. But uh, a very, very brief overview of the series is that you have Freddy Krueger, a, a gloved killer who stalks teenagers and kills them in their dreams. So I saw Nightmare on Elm Street 1 when I was a kid, and I've been watching the whole series um, since then, so probably 20 years or so. For myself, I first watched the Nightmare on Elm Street series with Kelly over a decade ago. I think it it was part of our once a year when I would would visit Kelly in Toronto, I'd pick one horror movie to watch. And so we watched the first Nightmare on Elm Street. So we watched the first Nightmare on Elm Street with Kelly in Toronto years and years ago. And then when I moved to Ottawa, I had a friend who was a, who had the entire Nightmare on Elm Street series, and I was like, you know, curious to watch it. So he lent it to me, my friend Dave Cardi, and I watched them all, and I enjoyed them. So Kelly, what do you like about the series? There are so many things that I adore about the Nightmare on Elm Street series. We have wonderful female characters, you know, highlighting Alice and Nancy. Um, it's an imaginative series. It's funny. It's dark. It's super entertaining. Uh, and I love Freddy, for sure. As uh, one of the big three horror franchises, it's my absolute favorite, and he is my favorite killer, because I think he's quite wonderful, and later on we'll get into why Freddy became such uh, a horror icon. How about you? Uh, For myself, I am a huge fan of early Freddy, um, because I find he is much more scarier and um, disturbing as a killer, and I will kind of go into later more depths on why I'm not a huge fan of later uh, iterations of Freddy in the, later in the series. I know we kind of get a bit more of Freddy back with like the films that came out in the 90s. But um, what I also really enjoy is the in-depth characterization of all the teenagers. That 
you know, when you're watching the series, it's not just random teenagers getting killed off one by one in a, in a camp. It's you get to know these people. You get to, and you get to see some strong characterization. And like Kelly said, you get some amazing, fabulous um, female protagonists who really carry the films throughout. And they really just sh- it shows a lot of care. So I really like that about the series. So your dislikes. The only dislike that I have is actually something that you brought up is that in Nightmare on Elm Street 1 and 2, Freddy is very dark. He's scary. Um, and he becomes a bit more of a caricature later on, though still the element of killing you in your dreams is horrifying. Um, so that's really the main thing that I dislike about it. I understand why they went there and everything, and it doesn't diminish my love of the series. But if I had to choose one thing, it would be that... I did like how Freddy went really dark in the remake, so I was happy to to have good old spooky, spooky Freddy back. Yeah, and like I said, that's the only thing I dislike about the series is how Freddy becomes campier and campier as the series progresses. And I also noticed that as the series progresses and the kills get more in, um, complicated, you see less blood. like. A hell of a less blood in all the kills and stuff like that, and which I know is kind of weird for me to say, but when you watch like the first two, you know, especially in like the very first one, the whole geyser of blood when Glenn's killed, and then you get to the end of the film and people are being killed in very like uh, random creative ways, but you see no blood at all, and you're like, well, this isn't interesting. But I also feel like this has something to say about the times uh, too, at the when that, those films were made. Which is actually a perfect segue into um, talking about horror in the 80s. Um, as you know, Kelly and I like to go into a little context as to what, what was influencing these films at the time of their creation. And also looking into how Nightmare on Elm Street became a series and a full franchise. So the majority of the horror films from the 80s were slashers. You know, they were low budget fare with a lot of teenagers being attacked by masked killers or just being killed overall. The 80s was definitely the age of practical special effects, practical gore, you know, a lot of Tom Savini work, Stan Winston work, especially with like creature features and things like that. Some would even say that these were conservative precautionary tales, you know, conservative folks definitely disliked horror movies overall and definitely slashers. But if you look in, you know, kind of the horror tropes of the slashers, if you were a sinner, you were punished. The 80s was a very (laughs) fun and wacky time. Um, The fashion, the music, just the whole aesthetics of, you know, everything in the 80s. It was all about fashion and name brand clothing. You had tons of commercials, magazines, models, and that was the rise of music videos. So the 80s were infamous for the popularization and proliferation of franchises. We can now have name brand movies. So we saw in the 80s, five Nightmare on Elm Streets, four Halloween, eight, eight Friday the 13th movies. (laughs) I read that and I was like, oh, they pretty much put one out every single goddamn year. That is nuts. Um, (laughs) That's why they're literally the same every time. (laughs) Yes, there's not a lot of thought there. And, you know, three Silent Night, Deadly Night movies, etc., etc. There's a bunch of different options. Um, You know, home video actually started the market for multiple viewings of movies, and this is the first time in history. So you have all these video stores opening up. You can rent movies now. 
And when you would walk in, you could see recognizable movies. You knew the brand, right? You're like, oh, that's a Friday the 13th movie. You kind of know what to expect and the quality. It's name recognition. Again, coming back to name brands. 80s horror, and I don't think many people disagree with this, was, you know, the belief was that more and bigger was always better. Uh, It was preferred by audiences uh, and better than having a lot of, like, restraint and originality. They wanted things to be really flashy. Many very average movies were made in the 80s. There's less variation in style and form overall in this decade compared to previous ones like the 70s, where there was tons of style and different types of movies, a lot of thought put into them. Uh, We saw in this decade a lot of, like I said, a lot of slashes, a lot of Stephen King adaptations, the invention of rubber reality, which is what we'll definitely go into that later on. And overall reduced uh, in quality compared to, you know, horror of the 70s. And horror dominated the 80s. We could see our horror icons on TV as well. It was a decade which was hugely saturated with horror. It was like a huge, huge boom in it. Uh, A survey that was done by the National Coalition on TV Violence in the late 80s saw that 60% of children between the ages of 10 to 13 recognized Freddy Krueger and only 33% recognized Abraham Lincoln. So even kids know who Freddy Krueger is. (laughs) Even people that aren't even horror fans know exactly who he is. Uh, So the 80s saw like the explosion of horror and then into the 90s you saw a bit of a horror recession. So Kenneth Muir, who writes a lot of books on horror and definitely about 80s horror, called this the history of the dead teenager, the decade of dead teenagers. So the 80s brought horror the closest to the mainstream than had ever been before. You know, we saw a a brand new decade of iconic horror boogeyman. Gone were the days of Dracula, the Wolfman, and Frankenstein's monster. We now have Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, a little bit of Leatherface, a little bit of Chucky thrown in, right? And yes, getting into slashers because there were 75 made between 1980 and 1989. So slashers were not at all well-liked and some would even call them the most disreputable form of horror. They were very frowned upon. They were also called stalkers, and sometimes were considered more of like a rogue genre with films that are quote-unquote tough, problematic, and fiercely individualistic. That was a quote by Adam Rockwell, who wrote, Going to Pieces, The Rise and Fall of the Slasher Film, 1978 to 1986. This was a subgenre that people thought had bad influences on society, encouraged violence overall, and definitely thought that they are anti-woman. Roger Ebert called them dead teenager films because we saw a lot of dead teenagers in the 80s. It was just so easy, easy pickings. (laughs) Um, But you can also see in slashers perhaps that we had teenagers or people actually facing their problems and not ignoring them. Um, There were a lot of real world threats in the 80s and the slashers and these horror movies could show teenagers that they can survive, especially with the right skill set. In the 70s, movies, you know, a lot of movies shattered certain taboos. Rape, cannibalism, murder. They were called, it was savage cinema. They were profitable, and the 80s slashers wanted to replicate this. Um, Slashers are really cheap and easy to make, and, you know, better and quicker to a chance of success. They were called quick payoffs. They would have really big first weekends, but not a lot of longevity. Um, And this really astounded critics. 
you know, for example, Friday the 13th had a budget of about $70,000 and made over $40 million. Um, it stayed number two at the box office for seven weeks. Wow. So this is really something that's really interesting that we see this because the 80s is actually known as the culture of materialism. This was a time of material success and it was really important to show what you had to show how important you are. So particularly, we see this in American culture. So the American culture was defined by both political and social conservatism with the election of Ronald Reagan. So President Reagan at the time tried to abolish the welfare state and reduce the size of the federal government to allow him to eliminate obstacles against American business and allow them to return to producing goods for mass consumption for society. So high life in the White, in the White House was what Americans wanted to emulate. And the president told Americans to spend, and so they did. However, we see that this would have a dark side. We end up seeing this huge divide in the upper and lower class. While Americans were spending their money freely and essentially just living in malls, we were seeing less and less financial support going out to social programs, thus leading to a society where people lost homes or left to wander the streets. We see the rise of homelessness and reports of child abuse soaring. So we can see where all these really horrible negative things are coming up and people are turning more to cinema to escape that reality of what was happening. Uh, shopping became an obsession. Malls became were becoming second homes in the 80s. We had brands, as Kelly was talking about earlier, brands defined who you were and who your persona was. It, your persona was created through possessions from clothing that you wore, the cars you drove, your home decor, the music you listened to. It was always constant competition influencing consumer spending. And we definitely see this in a film called like American Cycle, which is one we'll probably talk about, you know, over the next six months or so. But but really great, really great film to really show this representation of cult of materialism in the 80s. So with this happening, standard of living had changed. We have cable television influencing the households with new programming such as MTV and music videos to con convey the image as well. Uh, the VCR allowed people to record TV shows and watch feature films in their own homes. That's a huge rise in these franchises because people now can go to a rental store, bring it home, watch it at home. They don't have to go to a movie theater to see their films. As well as we see the PC being introduced by Apple and work was becoming computerized. So it was becoming easier and easier for people to display their wealth and easier for them to acquire more. The accumulation of objects led to a great deal of noise and for many people to be able to communicate and to break through the noise, it just felt like they had to get more and more objects. And we see how this impacts films in the 80s and particularly the horror films because we see a lot of actual social commentary coming out about this. Um, as Kelly just, uh, has already mentioned, we see a rise in practical effects. So we see a rise in body horror um, because the you know special effects have been improved. We have technical technological advances, animatronics, uh, liquid and foam latex, and Nightmare on Elm Street series is a great example of how practical effects got only improved, improved, improved to show like a really good theatrical film. Um, and it was also very common practice to watch a 80s horror film and just watch piles of gore on top of gore on top of gore. It was just like a society itself. 80s was a culture of materialistic excess. We were seeing this in our horror films. It became a decade where the excessive use of latex started to become almost laughable. And you you can definitely tell over time when we start when you watch the film like society, it definitely has a commentary to that as well. The 80s, we saw more evisceration on the screen. We were being able to see bodies being uh, pulled apart, torn inside and out, aka Nightmare on Elm Street 2. But then at the same time too, like I said, 
we see the rise of the zombie genre um, and becoming a commentary on shopping and becoming slaves to excess. So horror was really good for the box office in the 1980s. We had such huge hits as Gremlins and Ghostbusters, you know, the Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. And they really focused, the slasher genre really focused towards a main demographic of 15 to 24 year old males who were seeking a rite of passage to prove that they had what it takes to watch the images on the screen as they were becoming more excessively, excessively gory. And going further into that, um, we have New Line Cinema creating the brand that we know as Elm Street. So I read this long and incredibly fascinating article, and it's called Between Dreams and Reality, Genre Personae, Brand Elm Street, and Repackaging the American Teen Slasher Film. And it's done by Richard Nowell, who is also the author of Blood Money, A History of the First Teen Slasher Film Cycle. So I do have a bit of a summary of the main important points, but I definitely recommend folks reading it because it's incredible the amount of thought that New Line put into this franchise and the creation of what it is, which is a brand. So this article and essay introduces the concept of genre persona. So, you know, scholars have shown that a genre can seen as a product of, you know, the conversations and the dialogue that's been happening, you know, around films surrounding it, and that those have seemed to have deemed to share common characteristics, essentially how different films influence each other. So New Line Cinema took what they had learned from previous horror movies and slasher movies before 1984 and all of the perceptions surrounding them, which was, as we mentioned, very negative, that they were misogynistic, kind of lowbrow, not quality films, and turned it into what we know as the brand Elm Street. Turned it from a low-budget horror, which was the first one, into the hugely successful Enterprise. So the critics and media and journalists and all of them definitely misrepresented teen horror and slashers, which can influence other critics and society and moviegoers as a whole. You know, for example, publicists and, you know, media distancing Silence of the Lambs from horror to label, label it more as a thriller. You know, horror, as we know as horror fans, as seen as a lower common denominator of film. And then also as horror fans, we know that that is not the case a lot of the time. It's okay to be called a horror film. So they, so these, you know, slashers are also called like the splatter movie and they lump them all into that category without, you know, looking into them as individual art pieces. So New Line wanted to show that their movie and then movies were different. They're new Hollywood movies and that took them into the mainstream. Teens definitely enjoyed going to see slasher movies and horror movies but there were a portion of, you know, teens, probably some of those teens that like the horror movies, but they wanted to go see war games and risky business, oh, Tim, you know, good old Tom Cruise, uh, and flash dance, more like wholesome, enjoyable movies, youth-centered movies. So New Line took all the information that they had and put it together to create, like I said, this brand, combine horror with these types of youth-centered movies. So New Line started their promotion. And from this article, um, they said um, they distinguished both Nightmare on Elm Street and Nightmare on Elm Street 2 from early teen slashers by inviting oppositions between the alleged misogyny, inner city deprivation and brutal realism of early teen slashers and Elm Street's supposedly innovative status as female friendly, middle class centered suburban fantasies. Also, in addition to the suburban set supernatural blockbuster like Poltergeist, youth market winners like Fast Times at Ridgemount High, the previously mentioned Flashdance and Risky Business. 
Um, you know, put all that in the press kits. Emphasize the fantastical dream sequences, a, spirit, a spirited heroine. Um, you know, and the fact that these were suburban, you know, set pieces in high school. You know, Nancy Thompson was the typical American kid growing up in a clean, middle-class California suburb. You know, and also stated that Nightmare on Elm Street is the story of the courage and resourcefulness of one extraordinary girl. It was a psychological fantasy thriller that rips apart the barrier between dreams and reality. And we saw some promotion for Nightmare on Elm Street 2. They promoted the, the huge romance element to lure people in. You know, the quote on the movie poster, the man of your dreams is back. So during 1986 to 1989, New Line Cinema transformed Elm Street um, into this huge brand, which uh, was largely imagined by the American popular culture mainstream of that time. Um, industry watchers evidently, you know, shared this view because they casually described Elm Street's film as, among other things, as Hollywood mainstream and even horror's answer to James Bond. So now you have you know, critics and quote-unquote important people saying, oh, this is Hollywood, this is mainstream horror, this is great. New Line also did extensive promotion. They did very wide releases of movies. Nightmare on Elm Street was at the multiplex. It was at the malls. Just talked about the malls. Malls were huge. So if you got your movie into the mall, that was a huge, huge deal. So a lot of these, like, quote-unquote, low-brow, low-butch horror movies, especially the slasher movies, were being shown in really small, grungy cinemas, grindhouses, whereas we had Freddy coming out for meet-and-greets at the mall. And this showed, this was the beginning of showing how merchandisable this brand was. They used Freddy as an icon in the image of the Nightmare on Elm Street brand to maximize exposure for the movies. Uh, New Line also prioritized licensing to manufacturing of goods and things, you know, primarily for like costumes and displays. And then you started seeing all the Freddy costumes. Um, we got posters, you got soundtracks, you even had Nightmare on Elm Street games. New Line knew exactly what they were doing to get this franchise off the ground. Uh, so New Line also collaborated with MTV, you know, the area, era of music videos, MTV, you know, glam metal, 80s music. It was huge. Uh, you saw Freddy Krueger go into, you know, music videos and, you know, for, for Dream Warriors with Dokken, right? That was huge for, for the Nightmare on Elm Street series. New Line also promoted this film as a female youth friendly. They had strong heroines, sympathetic female characters, female friendships, daughter-parent relationships, heterosexual yearning, courtship, romance, and relationships. And also some topics that were seemed to be relevant to young American females like body image issues, eating disorders, academic expectations, and unplanned pregnancy. Like I said, there's so much more in this article that I really recommend you reading it because it's fascinating just the amount of information out there and how much work and thought went into not only creating these movies, but just getting that, you know, that brand. I'll keep calling it a brand because that was the era of Elm Street out there. It was amazing. Yeah. So another thing that came out of the 80s in terms of a brand of the Nightmare on Elm Street series was also as Kelly had spoken about earlier, the slasher explosion, but also most importantly as something to uh, horror fans like myself and Kelly, the rules that, that come with a slasher film. Um, we had the creation of mass killers and ever-growing pile of dead teenagers. 
But we saw two important elements uh, introduced to the horror genre in the sense that horror is a high volume with low quality business. So a lot of studios produce up to 80 slasher films in the 90s alone, causing a huge market saturation. And also the rules of the slasher gave us invincible killers who were either who were purely evil and always find a way to survive. You always had your final girls. Every sequel, there's going to be a higher body count as you have a next movie. And so what's interesting is that when we come into the modern age of horror, we're seeing these rules that were established in the 80s being broken and being changed with, we're now having empathy for the villains, the villains because we're now learning backstories about them. We see the evolution of the final girl, and we're also seeing the rise of meta-horror, uh, thanks to, you know, the one and only Wes Craven himself. So then, as we'll continue on, we'll discuss more about how Freddy himself, how he's like a major horror icon. You know, he is perhaps, uh, like uh, Kelly said, he is familiar. He is he was the rock star of his day, and he still is kind of like the rock star of his day. You'll see millions of memes of Freddy Krueger all over the internet, and everyone knows who he is. And it's a curious popularity that helped establish the Nightmare on Elm Street cycle as one of the most critically and commercially successful horror series of the last decade. And to date, the first three entries of the saga have collectively earned more than $100 million in in the newest installment, the Dream Master, so this uh, article came out around the time Dream Master was being released, um, earned $12.8 million the first weekend of its release in August, um, a record for an independent distributed film. When we look at Freddy Krueger, we see, like, yes, in the first two films, he is the dark boogeyman. We barely see him in, in both the films, especially in the first one. But as he continues to grow and he continues to develop throughout the series, we're seeing this blend of humor and horror uh, together because we all know Freddy and we all know him for his one-liners. He became, which is kind of, I'm just going to put this out there, he became a merchandiser's wet dream <laughs> from the sweater, the gloves, the hat, anything that was like recognizable to Freddy Krueger, that was something that they could use to merchandise and to sell people. And we still see merchandise now, like just this past year at Spirit Halloween, they were selling the Freddy Krueger, you know, sweater and you could, you know, find the glove if you want um, as a collector edition thing. And what was nice about the films as well is that whilst the kills were low, they weren't, you know, the uh, Jason going around and killing, you know, the body count gets more and more aggressive every film. As you watch in the series, every kill becomes like a mini movie in itself. There's always a separate location. There's always this really big buildup. And then the dispatch is usually pretty epic. And that's what's great about the whole Nightmare on Elm Street series. And for Freddy himself as, a, as an icon, is there are no rules for Freddy. There are no rules as to when he'll strike. It can be done in broad daylight. It can be done anywhere. You fall asleep. You're dead. You're dead. <laughs> you're dead. Yes, Freddy. God, I love him so much. He's so fascinating and weird and funny and creepy. And he's definitely a slasher with personality. Um, so as per Robert England, I wanted to see what his take on Freddy was and how he saw him because, you know, Robert England played Freddy from pretty much beginning to end, which is amazing. And he was so wonderful as him. So as per Robert England, he says he doesn't think that Freddy remains neither humorous or heroic. Here's his take on it. After all, Freddy is a child killer, a kind of modern monster that we have seen and heard a lot about in recent years. But in a way, he's a symbol of even something worse. 
Although I don't play abstracts as, a, as an actor, I think that what Freddy really stands for is this idea of killing the future. He has no place there, and so he is killing it. He has an envy of youth, and when teenagers see these movies, I'm sure that's what really freaks them out and scares them. Even though they may not intellectualize it, they understand that's what Freddy is truly stalking, their future hopes. So Freddy's aesthetics. So to become an icon, you have to have a certain look. And our big three horror slashers do have their own look. So looking more into Freddy's image, you know, he's got an eye-catching look. He's got a great costume. Like Jess said, we're seeing, we continuously and still see Freddy Krueger costumes out at Halloween. You can buy the glove and get masks and the sweaters. God, I bought myself a sweater myself. You know what I mean? It's fantastic. So speaking of the sweater, so Wes, Cra Wes Craven read that red and green together can cause psychological unease and subconscious friction. Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the fedora, the iconic fedora that Freddy Krueger wears. So Wes Craven was also influenced by a lot of German expressionism, those movies from the 20s and 30s. Fedoras were worn by detectives in film noir. They became a symbol of suave masculinity, which is interesting when you contrast that with a child alluded to molester and definitely child killer. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street was influenced by the 1931 film M by expressionist director Fritz Lang, which stars a child killing man defined by the fact that he wears a fedora. His boots and pants, that points to his middle-class working background. His glove. His glove is a huge, huge factor here. He crafts his weapon in his own workshop. Every killer needs a weapon, so that immediately became an iconic thing. You can buy high-end replicas. I have one of them. Do you buy high-end replicas of machetes? No, because that's truly an actual weapon that you can kill people with, so please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the, uh, the weapon itself is also a nod to the expressionist roots, Nosferatu, those long, sharp fingernails. I totally just did this like hand gesture with me with long fingernails like a vampire. Nobody can see that. That's too bad. <laughs> so Freddy is not a faceless killing machine. He's ruthless. He's clever. He's sadistic. He personalized his weapon. That means he enjoys what he does. And it never seems to be that Michael Myers or Jason enjoy their killing. They just seem to do it kind of out of pure instinct. You know, they just go out and kill people. But they're wearing masks. We don't actually see what's going on. They don't have much personality, but Freddy does. His skin, he's a burned monster. He looks, yeah, he looks more like a monster than he does a human. Looks a little bit of Count Orlock from Nosferatu. Hooked nose and things. And then the gate itself. So Robert England uh, said that the glove was actually quite heavy. And after wearing it for hours at a time, it kind of weighed down his arm, which kind of gave Freddy that tilted, lopsided look. Like he kind of held that arm a little bit lower than the other. It's subtle, but it... You know, it adds to his image. It was very believable. And that, you know, completes, uh, you know, the Freddy image. How's this for a wet dream? <laughs> I was, re when doing some research on this, um, something was brought up and I couldn't find any more information on there. And it'd be maybe interesting to talk a little bit about it is, um, so why have we made these killers, these slasher, these people that kill other people as, you know, heroes or these icons. And 
perhaps why haven't we made Nancy more of, let's say, an icon? And we always talk about Freddy. It's Freddy, Freddy, Freddy. It's not Nancy, Nancy, Nancy. Heather Langenkamp actually made a documentary called I Am Nancy, which gets into that whole thing. Like, why did Nancy not become, you know, the hero of these movies, or at least the movies she was in? Uh, and Freddie does. I sadly was not able to watch it. I really wanted to, but that is a thing that exists and folks should watch it. Um, so why, why did that happen? Why aren't we talking about these final girls more, um, these strong female characters, but we're talking about the horror icons, like the killin, the killins? <laughs> why are we talking about the villains? So sometimes in slasher films, it's kind of the, the tropes in them, right? Um, as the audience, we tend to sometimes sympathize more with the monster than with the heroes. And then most of them are women. Siskel and Ebert do a uh, discussion of this issue in a video called Women in Danger. Because they call a lot of these movies the Women in Danger movies. They discuss slasher films and how they often encourage audiences to identify with the villain to the point where people, you know, they're rooting for them. Like, yes, kill all these people. This is great. Um... It very well could be that a lot of the perspectives and the filming of these movies come from the killer's perspective. There's like the point of view shots through the eyes of the killers and when they're stalking them. You can see the see the victim. So we're kind of asking the audience to identify more with the killer than the victims. They're just fodder, right? We don't have to care about them. Nightmare on Elm Street actually did utilize that type of filming, which is really great, but we still have Freddy as the most popular character. So I couldn't really, I don't really know why that necessarily came up. Is it just that being bad is more fun than being good? I can understand that. Um, is it a sexist related thing? Maybe. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Jess? What, that we're attracted to these killers because... Yeah, why, yes, why have they become the icons and not the, let's say, Nancy? I'll just use Nancy as... Uh, as the uh, example, why has she not become the hero and the face and the icon of Nightmare on Elm Street necessarily? I mean, she was only in two, but, you know, why did Freddy become the the icon over, you know, focusing more on the female characters? Hmm. I think that's a really interesting and good question to ask because we see that the same with... Um you know, Halloween and also in all the Jason movies, Friday the 13th movies, like you never really see anyone talk about Alice and Friday the 13th who goes up against Jason or, you know, people do talk about Laurie now, but not as often in the sense of going up against um, Michael Myers. It's always Michael Myers. And I feel like you kind of hit that on the head in the sense of people, it's like these our icons represent something deep and inside us that we don't necessarily want to admit to because um, they are guys they, they live on the outliers of society and they kind of you know they take on they take revenge where they feel they need to take their revenge or they they have no there's they're boundless there's no way of stopping them they're forever eternal and i feel like which is like they represent like inner deep desires within us that we would never as human beings or as like decent human beings would never want to see ourselves act upon right because that's obviously horrific to kill other people and and delight in the joy of it but yeah why do we turn to why do we ha have all these like funkos of michael myers and F freddy krueger and stuff like that where yeah i don't have my nancy funko I think they're out there. Are they out there? I've never seen a Nancy. I don't think so, actually. I don't think exactly, at all. Exactly, right? Nope. And, like, 
as I'm older now and getting in touch with more of my feminist roots, yeah, I'm definitely rooting more for Nancy now. I mean, I'm just like, wait a second. She is the true, uh, she is Freddie's true adversary and she does that definitely deserves more recon- recognition. And why do we not have, but I think this has something to say about our societal uh, differences when it comes to gender as well, because Freddie, Michael, Jason, they're all male. And we saw this. We see this. We saw this issue with a lot of other franchises like Star Wars, Star Trek. You see a lot of toys and a lot of material goods uh, representing the male side of those uh, genres. You know, but where is? Uh, but very rarely do we see the you know the Princess Leia toy. Like I think it's only just in the past recent years that they're like people are starting to put out more action figures that are not Barbie like. Uh, to to um, speak to the female side of consumerism, so I feel like that once again it's like a gendered thing that these killers are male, and so people will obviously recognize and uh, support once again like that no- that another form of patriarchy in our film. I don't know. That's a really good. I really want to sit with that one now. <laughs> yeah. No. That that was amazing. Uh, I think while you're talking, it was great. I was thinking um, that these because these films are seen more also as fun, let's just, boy, let's just keep it to the big three. Yeah. They're seen more as fun and these killers aren't truly human. Yeah. Um, I don't think if we watched Silence of the Lambs, we're rooting for Hannibal Lecter to be in Buffalo Bill to be skinning and killing and eating people. I think there are less people being like, yes, try to kill Clarence Starling. You know what I mean? But whereas <laughs> yeah. in these movies where it's a bit more fun, there's that escapism, you know, yes. relate, relating back to your, you know, deep inner desire. And sometimes I like watching people be killed. I don't want to do it. But yeah, yeah it kind of gets, you know, kind of cathartic in a way. But yeah. it's fun. I just kind of want to put that out there. <laughs> Thanks, Jess. Yeah, you're welcome. So... There are some people out there that think Nightmare on Elm Street is not a slasher movie. It's not a slasher series. So we wanted to get into what constitutes an actual slasher film. So Kenneth Muir has this wonderful, fascinating breakdown of all of the conventions in a slasher film. So the components of a slasher film, and I will go through them and highlight a couple of the Nightmare on Elm Street aspects of them. So different conventions. So you have the organizing principle. So your location and setting, like a prom summer camp, dreams, a nightmare on Elm Street, or Nancy's house on Nightmare on Elm Street. The deadly preamble, crime in the past, or transgression, which is like the motive or cause of all of these attacks. Freddie was burned alive by angry parents. Um, And then three, we have a variety of character archetypes, or the killer and the victim pool, So you have the killer, Freddy. You have the bitch, practical joker, and the jock, which could be Tina, Rod, and Glenn, using mainly Nightmare on Elm Street 1 to, to, you know, focus on. The Cassandra figure, so the person that warns of the danger, which is often the local drunk that's like, I wouldn't go down that side road. I've heard bad things happening. And then the people obviously do, and then you have a horror movie. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. As you're yelling at the scream, do not go down that road. Yeah. If the road is not on the map, don't go down it. Uh, Movie over. <laughs> we decided not to go down this road. And then there's like, then they just live happily ever after, which is boring. Right? Now we want to see, now we're talking about people being killed, right? Because we want to see this. Damn it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
you have the useless authority and the veneer of respectability. So, for example, Mr. Thompson, or you know, played by John Saxon in Nightmare on Elm Street, he's an authority figure, but pretty useless. Uh, all the red herrings, which are distraction or misdirection in movies. You have the final girl. <laughs> so the final girl, we all know her. We all love her. We know Carol Clover wrote Men, Women, and Chainsaws, and she defined the final girl. She is the one who encounters the mutilated bodies of her friends and perceives the full extent of the preceding horror and her own peril, who is chased, cornered, wounded, whom we see scream, stagger, fall, rise, and scream again. She alone looks death in the face, but she alone finds the strength to stay the killer long enough to be rescued, ending A, or kill him herself, ending B. So normally this is the main character. They're not sexually active. They're watchful, intelligent, resourceful. She is the example of why slashers aren't inherently misogynistic. She is admirable, a survivor, a positive role model. She is not exploited. She's a winner, a champion with, quote-unquote, the most potent power. So in Nightmare on Elm Street, we, mainly we have Nancy and Alice. They're in control when they engage with Freddy. They also end up controlling when they do engage with Freddy. They're like, okay, I have this mission I have to. I have to defeat Freddy. I'm going to take my sleeping pills. I'm going to sleep now. They have a lot more control than anybody else that we have seen in those movies. In, in the 80s, the final girl evolved. So we saw Laurie Strode in 1978, uh, and, but she just needed to survive the night. Nancy needs to continuously try and protect herself because her killer gets to you out of her dreams, right? So that's not a one-time thing. You fucking have to sleep all the time. Um, so she has to figure out how to, you know, go on life with this looming figure uh, and this threat. Uh, and we know she actively works on trying to survive and vanquish evil. Uh, Final Girls later on in other movies end up protecting not only themselves, but others too. For example, Hellraiser 2, Aliens, and Halloween 4. This is one of my favorite things that I've almost ever read. So, and this came out of Kenneth Muir's Horror Movies in the 1980s book. And I'm going to quote it, and I get really pumped about this. The (laughs) final... You'll see why. The final girl would finally, so, sorry, the evolution of the final girl. The final girl would finally transcend her origins in the derided and slasher films and become the thing she had always been destined to be. And that's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. (laughs) (laughs) Final girls turn into Buffy. So I really feel like that is the best thing to come out of slasher fucking movies. So we know that Joss Whedon (laughs) developed Buffy, the character, based on the types of girls that they see in horror movies, the blonde that ke- that gets killed constantly. And maybe you wanted to see her become a fully realized final girl. I love this. Everyone should be a vampire slayer, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone become Buffy. <laughs> oh, I wish. So, and then to, find, to finish off the um, conventions of a slasher movie, you have common scenarios You have the first scare, and if it's a sequel, then the first kill is often the survivor of the previous film, if you have a series. You have false scares, fucking jumping cat thing. (laughs) (laughs) You have nature and failed technology. Uh, You have vice precedes the slice and dice, uh, your sin and then your punishment. The final chase and tour of the dead. You'll see the corpses of those previously killed and usually all of your friends. Uh, The coupe de grace. 
over-the-top death scene. It's shocking. It's gory. It's the worst gross kill of the movie. Uh, you have the sting in the tail or tail. You have the last scare. And then finally, the point of view and space relation. So you see a lot of the POV, the point of view shots for misdirection. You can see through the eyes of the killer. And for some reason, the killer just always seems to know the surroundings very well. He knows when people are going to be there and he knows when they're going to be there alone. He gets there at the right place at the right time. And even if they're slow walking, they still make it. <laughs> defy all physics. They defy yeah, physics. Yeah. <laughs> so when looking at Nightmare on Elm Street as a slasher film, well, it holds to a lot of the conventions. What I think is interesting that in my own uh, research that the first uh, Nightmare on Elm Street film, so Wes Craven, before he became a filmmaker, he was actually an academic. And this is actually very apparent in the first Nightmare on Elm Street uh, film. And it's really a film that is very different from a lot of other dead teenager films that came out in the 1980s. Because the movie itself is very thematic. The teenagers in Craven's movies, especially the first one, they're not boiled down to these set surface attributes of either being, you know... Um, the jock, the slut, the virgin, the fool, uh, but they're intelligent humans with valid opinions, they have complex lives, and they also have complex views on the world. And he also, in the first film, deals with a very, uh, deals with violence in, the, in a very mature way by tackling the cycle of revenge and the nature of reality and so and how necessary rebellion is against skewed adult authority and a moral compass. So we see this when uh, Nancy, as a child of the Elm, uh, the child of the parents who were who became vigilantes and took justice into their own hands by burning by murdering Freddy, uh, she sees how she's become that victim of the cycle of revenge and that it'll just never end because Freddy will always want to keep killing all the children of Elm Street and will always go after like the descendants of those people, and at the same time too, her mother is trying to well as Nancy's trying to. to explain these things to her family to her mother to her father and they just will not listen to her and they say like we're the adult we know best we know what's right and she has to defy the authority she has to always become the adult in these in these situations to be able to save herself and her life so i think it's interesting because that's where i find the the first couple of Nightmare on Elm Street really defy the slasher genre in the sense of some of the conventions that are it's a little more complex than the, you know, the Friday the Thirteenth, where Friday the Thirteenth fits that slasher trope, that box very neatly. So rubber reality. This is a term and phrase that Wes Craven actually defined, and Jess will go into that. But I want to say that there are, so there are three factors that differentiate rubber reality films to. Previous slasher films. So, one, the killer gets a personality. You know, they make threats, they make jokes, and no longer silent while killing, and perhaps more entertaining. Uh, two, the kills are no longer basic, but they're elaborate. They're more expensive. There's more special effects, like all of those dream sequences. They're much, much more imaginative, which is why I love Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, number three, films. Um, these, the rubber reality films posited the existence of the alternate supernatural realms. So overall, they are much more expensive to make than regular run-of-the-mill basic slashers. So they definitely reduced in number and there's not a lot of these types of films specifically compared to rubber reality. And Jess will give more examples. 
So Wes Craven's film really remains rooted in like this elemental conception of it's an antagonist. So you have Freddy Krueger as a personification of fear. And he like gains strength from uh, the more his potential victims believe in his existence. Going back to Carol Clover, and we're kind of talking about, you know, slashers and what do they really mean and what are they kind of definitions. Carol Clover says that slasher films are traditionally unmediated by otherworldly fantasy. That is, they are firmly rooted in the everyday, which in part makes them what makes them ideologically distinct from classic horror films. So that's not necessarily our like more fantastical rubber reality films like Nightmare on Elm Street. Vera Dika in her essay, The Stalker Film, 1978-81, says something relatively similar. She said, these films need their less than professional look, their devalued quality, and their lack of sophistication to reduce the realism of the screen events and to encourage a gaming response to the film. You know, essentially, whereas Clover says that their uniqueness and primitive primitiveness is a staple of the subgenre and important in classifying it. Our slasher monsters, as per Clover in her book, is driven by a psychosexual urge. But that's not necessarily true for Freddy. Here's He's overall here. He's here to avenge his own death. He's a bit of a narcissistic killer in that regard. Uh, and in traditional slasher films, we have depersonalized and masked killers. And again, as per Clover, these killers are human, but only marginally so, just as they are only marginally visible to their victims and then to us as spectators. So, yeah, so in the late 1980s, Wes Craven introduced what we call the rubber reality film with Nightmare on Elm Street in 1984. And what we see here is that Freddy could reshape reality itself through the dream world, just as Pinhead can do that in the gates of hell with the gates of hell. So rubber reality is most often associated with what Wes Craven has done. And John Woolley, he states horror in which characters move through landscapes that confuse the senses, placing them in an anxious borderland that exists between the state of wakefulness and the state of dreaming. So what's really great about rubber reality is that the audience cannot tell what is real and what is a dream as, as they follow the protagonist. And it always seems like there's no way of defeating the monster, which is completely true. Like you watch these Nightmare on Elm Street series films and you wonder like, are they dreaming? Is this a reality? Like, what's happening? And you always get that last ending where you're like, oh, you think they won, and it ends up being some form of dream again. With the horror of Nightmare on Elm Street, it is always about blending the uneasy borders of slumber and waking, and the viewer is never sure what is real. And that's universal in nightmare, in nightmare scenes, like waking up from a nightmare, and you sometimes have that feeling of you've just woken up and it feels really weird, like you're still like half asleep, still awake. And as the series progresses, though, we see Freddy become less of a boogeyman of our dreams and more of a ringmaster due to the constant evolving of special effects and Freddy's development of more intense hunting of his victims and the kills that he, he makes. So we see that he becomes less frightening. But still, the whole idea of rubber reality in itself, how reality can be shaped and molded by our killers and almost feels like the protagonists or the victims have no sense of control, that's really interesting. And that uh, at the same time, too, kind of, but we'll also see that we do see some of our victims or our protagonists start taking back control when they realize that it is their dreams and get their power back. So what do we think the verdict is? Do we think Nightmare on Elm Street is a slasher series, a slasher series or not? I would say it is a unique slasher, yes. Though I understand the whole concept of rubber reality, 
I still think that just because it's not your absolute bare bones basic template, cut and paste slasher film, that it has many interesting elements of a slasher. And I would say yes, that it could be labeled as a slasher, could be called a rubber reality slasher, whatever anybody wants to. I'm not going to get super offended if people don't think it's a slasher. I don't really care, but I would say (laughs) that yes, it is. I would have to say, you know, originally when we first start, uh, started on this research and on this topic, I would almost wanted to say, no, I don't think Nightmare on Elm Street is a slasher series. But when I look at when I look at it, it does hold to true to some of the elements of the conventions of a slasher in the ten set. It's just we see more complex characters. We see a more complex storyline. And Friday himself, he's a complex villain. When we find out later more about Jason and Halloween in our own discussions, I, they try to make these characters more complex when it doesn't really seem right, where this just seems natural from the very get-go. So I feel like it is an interesting hybrid of a slasher slash rubber reality slash just a good horror film. And I definitely agree. Now we're going to talk about our top three Nightmare on Elm Street kills. Yes, let's get to the killing. All right. <laughs> so, number one. My top three kills for Nightmare on Elm Street are uh, Tina's death, because I feel like it's the most memorable in the sense that it's the first death that happens on screen. Uh, Glenn's, because it's just crazy iconic, that geyser blood we see come out of his bed. And uh, I really had to have a time thinking of my third favorite one, and like when I was watching these films, I was really making a note of each of the kills and stuff like that, and I think the one I like the most um, is they call it motorcycle mayhem. So Dan's death in Nightmare on Elm Street Five, that whole transformation into the man into the machine, it's crazy. Oh yeah, that 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 is crazy. It is, and so it's very cool and it's very creative. And I'm sure that took a lot of work to do. And I thought it was really effective. That that definitely was a runner up for me because <laughs> it was so fucking cool. Um, for me. Definitely Tina's death, just like you. Not only is it the first death, it is fucking brutal. It's the most brutal death we see. She's There's so much blood and everything's so like, like she's wearing white, there's white sheets, and then she's just dragged all around the room and she falls into like a pool of her own blood and like falls off the bed. It's just like so impersonal and brutal. So I love it. Love it. Then I like in Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Philip's death. So it's like the puppet death. Oh, okay. Yeah. Where he's like the marionette. It makes me cringe oh, every yes. time to see like what I'm thinking, like nerves and things coming out of his arms and feet. It's gross. Um, and then my third one is Deb in Nightmare on Elm Street 4. I, besides loving that whole scene, I thought it was super creative. And it's just exactly why I love these films is that it's so creative and imaginative and gross. So I thought the practical effects in that one were fantastic. Like her arms bending too oh, far down oh. and like the cockroach arms spouting out. I just fucking loved it. And she turned to a cockroach. There's also that scene where her face falls down into the glue. And I just also cringe because it's like, it's so sticky and like, you're not getting out of that. <laughs> oh my God. It's uh, yeah, it gets me and I love them. So I wanted us to rate only Nightmare on Elm Street 1 through 5 in order of our favorites. So, Jess, you go first. So, in order of my favorites, it's number 1, number 3, 4, 2, and 5. And mine is very similar with the 
change of three and four. So it, for me, it's one, four, three, two, five. And I fucking love Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Please read my review on it because I just gush about all of the reasons why I really, really love that film. There's probably a small portion of it that stems from nostalgia. But as much as the fan favorite and I love Nightmare 3, I think number four is better. So. (laughs) (laughs) So you heard it. You heard it, folks. You heard it here. (laughs) You heard it here. You are all my children now. The remaining segment of this podcast is we're going to look at what we would, you know, either say the final girls or the women of Elm Street. So these are our protagonists, the ones that go up against Freddy time and time again in every in every film, except for Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, where it's this time it is uh, Jesse who has been coined as the final boy. And we're not going to go into too much detail about Jesse because that film in its in itself is like a whole podcast on its own just discussing some of the themes that we're seeing in this film but what's interesting about jesse is that we see this deviation from teenage girls fighting against freddie to a boy and freddie is trying to possess jesse who is portrayed as a loner an outcast and whenever he has dreams of freddie they're always very intense and he always wakes up sweating in an intense fear and people have noted this as being imagery of the whole um, AIDS-related night sweats that were happening in the whole fear of AIDS in the 1980s. Um, we see in this uh, this film a lot of imagery in relation to the fear of coming out as a homosexual and the constant stress of trying to be hetero and fit into a normal society. And on top of that, Jesse does a lot of things or go through a lot of scenar- scenarios that a teenage fe- uh, female final girl would also go through as well. Like I said, Kelly, is there anything more you want to add to about Jesse? Not necessarily. Um, You know, the main difference in that in the full canon of Nightmare on Elm Street is that Jesse actually becomes possessed by Freddy. And we don't see that in any other Nightmare on Elm Street. He's inside me. I'm scared. Jesse, who is doing this to you? Fred Krueger. He's inside me and he wants to take me again. So that's interesting kind of tidbit uh, of that movie. Um, it, there's no real like, there's minimal violence against him and Freddy because he's possessed, possessed, right? So there's no final fight besides it being him kind of emotionally defeating him without the use of violence. Um, and this has helped through his girlfriend, Lisa. So it, this movie is actually quite different than all of the other Nightmare on Elm Street movies for many, many reasons like the ones that Jess talked about, so we're not going to focus too much on him. Jesse will get his due later on. But we will get into the main final girl of the whole series, and that's Nancy. Kick it off, Jess. I think you guys, if you checked out my bio about me section, uh, my favorite final girl is Nancy Thompson. I actually have, is it Matthew Theron? Yes. I have one of his uh, artwork, pieces of artwork that Kelly got me, um, where it's the duality of uh, the final girl with uh, ad- adversary, uh, Freddy, on the side. So Nancy is great. Like, I just, I love her. She is the average teenage girl. She transcends the 80s slasher trope because she is a deeply caring and compassionate. She's clever, she's resourceful, and she's determined, and she's courageous. She is not Freddy's victim. She is his adversary. Because from the very get-go, when she learns about the danger to her and her friends, she learns all about Freddy as much as she can. She builds and she plans. She finds a way to survive. And we all know that amazing quote. Anti-personnel devices? What are you reading that for? 
I'm into survival. Every time I hear it, I, I literally like get chills down my spine because it's so great. Uh, she knows how to defeat Freddy or escape his hell when she needs to. And I think this is great because, like I said, when you're watching the first film and the first time she falls asleep and interacts with Freddy, she knows when to wake up. And that's when we see when she burns her arm on the side of the, uh, th uh, of the furnace. And you're like, holy crap, she's figured it out really quickly. Um, the only thing that really ever really defeats uh, Nancy in her uh, in her in this films is people's belief in her and so she has to survive due to her wit and she's not the typical virginal final girl but she's always having to feel like where she's always like especially with the adults she's always trying to get them to believe her and what's happening and she inadvertently always still ends up relying on them to help her which in the end I feel is unfortunate. And what I really like is that when I was doing some research and Wes Craven was talking about creating the character of Nancy, he said he felt he was, in, he was inspired by his daughter Jessica, who shared with him how inadvertently she wanted Nancy's, uh, wanted a girl in a horror movie that wasn't weak or foolish. And that's how we get, you know, Nancy Thompson. Nancy, go Nancy. <laughs> yeah. So I come across this really great article that kind of looks at the comparisons between Nancy and Laurie Strode from Halloween and how Nancy is more of a feminist final girl and Laurie is kind of an anti-feminist final girl. So it's called The Final Girl versus Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street, proposing a stronger model of feminism in slasher horror cinema. It's by Kyle Christensen. So we defined the final girl already as per Carol Clover. You know, and the final girl on the surface is definitely an icon of female empowerment and determination. You know, the final girl is this virtuous character that you can distinguish from the rest of the cast in the film because we, like Jess said, you know, she possesses a lot of exceptional traits. They're resourceful, they're clever, they're smart. And overall, um, the final girl, you know, she avoids sexual activity. She, her, she has watchful paranoia, which allows her to be resourceful in a pinch and when danger strikes and she's boyish in nature. That's the typical final girl trope, which means she's not girlish and weak because boys are strong and <laughs> girls are not. <laughs> uh, also, Laurie Strode's saved by a man in the end and Nancy is not in both movies. Definitely. She takes matters into her own hands and does her own thing. Uh, Nancy is perceived by Carol Clover as the quote-unquote grittiest of the final girls. Um, so Clover associates her alleged grittiness with her toughness in the final duel between her and Freddy. But she's also gritty in her contrast to Laurie Strode. So Nancy refuses to abide by all of those like arbitrary female belittling belittling restrictions of what we would think as true womanhood. There's four cardinal virtues of a true woman. There's purity, piety, submissiveness, and domesticity. Lori follows them all, which I will revisit this wonderful article when we talk about Halloween, but we're talking about Nancy right now, and sometimes I'll talk, you know, about Lori, but Nancy kind of goes against all of these things. So Nancy proves her feminist sensibilities in three ways. So first, Nancy is not afraid of men, as evidenced with her romance with her boyfriend, but she's also not so smitten with Glenn that she loses herself, her sense of self and agency. Second, Nancy does not subscribe to, you know, this, this feeling of the domestic sphere. Um, 
you know, she defies the reign of her alcoholic mother, Marge, and converts her home into practically a war zone to battle Freddy. So she's not, you know, comfortable at home. She always wants to leave her house, whereas Lori felt very comfortable at home. Third and lastly, uh, Nancy uses her power of her alert, paranoid mind and will, not violence per se, to, to defeat Freddy and transcend, in this as quoted, his domineering masculinity. So, a note on Nancy and the men in her life. So, slashers have this long history, as we know, and it's also, also in other film genres, as punishing sexually active or open women and showing that a true moral woman is that one that is virginal. We know that Nancy and Glenn are in love, their boyfriend, girlfriend, they kiss, they make out, but she controls how things progress. Like if you think about when they're at Tina's in the beginning and he's like trying to make, make out with her and try to get with her. She's like, no, we're here for Tina. We're not doing this right now. She's like very in control of her body and what, you know, was important in life. Uh, so she doesn't appear prudish or virginal necessarily. She's open to it. But, you know, the timing has to be right. You know, and you look at Tina, who is a bit of a weaker character because she seems incredibly submissive to Rod, who doesn't seem that fantastic of a human being. Yeah. Nancy's failed by the men in her life numerous times. Glenn falls asleep and he's supposed to help her out. Her dad doesn't fucking believe her when he's like, Friday's in my nightmares and trying to kill people. And in the very end, she's like, he's here, he's here. But she has to, you know, completely defend herself completely. Um, you know, Freddie tries to overcome her, but of course she comes out on top and victorious. Um, so Kira Clover talks about the terrible place, which is where the events of these slasher movies happen. Um, some... Some things I've read said that, like, the dreams would be, like, the subconscious would be the terrible place, but we often go back to Nancy's home in all of the movies in the franchise. That's where Freddy lives, per se, right? So Nancy's home, where she lives, is the terrible place. She doesn't feel safe there. Like I said, Lori felt very comfortable in the home, that domesticity, and Nancy always wants to leave. She's going to go to school. She's going to go to Tina. She's leaving. Unless she goes back home to you know, consciously and in control fight Freddy. Just mentioned this earlier. Nancy becomes the authority figure. She's the adult. She has an absentee father, alcoholic mother. You know, her relationship with her mom worsens throughout the movie, as does it seem Marge's alcoholism. At the end, she get, tucks her mom into bed with a fucking bottle of booze, right? Everything's going to be okay, mom. She's totally mature. She takes control for everyone to save everyone. So it was really interesting Craven's reason for casting Heather Langkamp was something of a really interesting to note because she did not look like, as he quotes, she did not look like her typical Halloween ingenuine. Uh, he recalled in a 2011 interview with Entertainment Weekly, she had a strength and an honesty to her face, which is something that I really like and appreciate about Nancy is that what makes her more relatable because she's not this beautiful you know, perky, blonde, or, you know, she's just, she, you just feel like you can relate to her in the situation that she's in and that she is a woman who takes, a young woman who takes charge of her own destiny and doesn't rely, as Kelly has expressed, on others to save her. And Nancy also goes ahead and she demonstrates that to be badass doesn't mean perpetrating the dominant framework of toxic male aggression, but by rising above it. So she doesn't use violence as her means to fight against Freddy, she uses her wits. 
And this is perhaps uh, Nancy's most important legacy and a wonderful reflection on the on Wes Craven, the man who created this character. Exactly. Nancy defeats Freddy in a very unique way and defeats him in two ways. Firstly, she becomes paranoid and is constantly monitoring her environment for looming threats, right? She's on top of things. She's like, when is he going to come next? I have to be prepared. Secondly, she uses her mind and her willpower, just like Jess said. So looking into the paranoia aspect of things. So that can be seen as a trait as, you know, a feeble trait. You're weak and quote unquote hysteric, terrible word of hysteria. We hate this word in this in this project. <laughs> Women seen as hysterics. But perhaps this paranoia can be seen also as a self-defense, like a defense mechanism, a self-preserving paranoia. You know, I forgot to look up where this woman is from, but a woman named Sandra Lee Barkey deems an alert feminist consciousness, which is necessary for recognizing oppression in all forms before striving to purge it from society. And the paranoia is integral to the final girl. She's the one, as per Clover in her books, is watchful to the point of paranoia, small signs of danger that her friends ignore. She registers, you know, Nancy is quick, just like Jess said, and soon at very first dream that she has with Freddie, she knows exactly how to wake herself up out of it. She is so fucking smart. She gets it, right? Of course she's going to survive. Um, Jonathan Markovitz said that um, he suggests that Nancy's paranoia leading her to avoid sleep, which is helpful when you're trying to defeat Freddie because he'll get you in your dreams. And she's frantically trying to convince her friends and family that she's in danger. And he says, it's what saves Nancy in the long run for it's only because she's afraid that she feels the need to take appropriate precautions. Nobody else is like really taking it as seriously as she is. She's seen as paranoid. No, you just need to get some sleep, but that's not true. Sleeping will kill her. Her mom in the movie remarks, you know, she says to her, you face things, that's your nature, that's your gift, but sometimes you have to turn away too. And just hours before that, both Glenn and Nancy are sharing their lunch and they're talking about different approaches to dreaming, if we remember that part. And Glenn offer, offered, uh, you know, certain findings from, you know, the philosophy of dreams. And he says, they turn their back on it, take away its energy and it disappears. So Clover's model for the this you know the final girl in slasher films like Laurie Strode is such a shining example we think and and in her book so that model of the final girl actually appears to take on some anti-feminist principles by of both the stifling of the cult of true womanhood we talked about like the purity the passivity to men self-imposed domesticity and the submission to a masculine kind of ideal and blatant masculinity. So we have so many of our final girls using their phallic objects, violence, and they don't necessarily always have that feminine paranoid insight that Nancy has. So Nancy, which is the opposite of Laurie Strode, breaks the bindings of what is traditionally associated with a quote unquote proper woman and sculpts her own identity as a woman which is amazing. And that's why Nancy is so wonderful and she's very unique. Nancy does not conform to this textbook final girl who, like I said, normally uses a phallic device. You know, Laurie Strode has knitting needles, a wire hanger, a knife and Halloween. Um, and it's all about that um, 
the final girl becoming masculine to like become like a man in order to defeat the killer, which in itself doesn't necessarily seem super feminist to become. That all makes sense. Um, my final note on that is, so this guy, uh, Tony Williams, who wrote Hearths of Darkness. So he says, and he argues that even heroic violence in film is still a perpetuation of part patriarchal violence. And just mentioned that earlier. Nancy becomes her own type of woman, her own type of final girl in order to quote unquote emasculate Freddie at the end, but does it in a nonviolent way. So she rejects that masculine gaze by turning around and not looking Freddie in the face. In the end, Nancy does not become a masculinized woman like Laurie Strode and that final girl trope, but she becomes a woman who is simply intimidated by masculinity no more. I love that quote. <laughs> so we'll move on to Lisa, my least favorite of the women of Elm Street. Yeah, and I, I don't have much to say about Lisa because as you say, like, she was my least favorite. She still is my least favorite. When I gave it a, a rewatch again this time around, I was like, I was hoping there was something I would see that'd be like, no, like, Lisa, there was something about you. And I saw it in the beginning where she does originally, she goes from being um, almost like a strong, independent woman. Like, she knows what she wants. She wants to date Jesse. She goes for it. You know, when he starts talking about the dreams that he's having and what he's what he's seeing, she does like research and she's trying to get him to confront his dreams. You know, so she's like, okay, like she seems very strong. And then at the end, it just all falls apart. And she just goes from being strong and seems like this very strong and resourceful person to like love conquers all and is all weepy and emotional for uh, Jesse. And it just, uh, the ending of that film always frustrates me. I just, like, when they say, like, I love you, and all of a sudden, he's better, and the emotion, they uh, they were able to emotionally outwit Freddy. Yeah. I, just, I totally agree. I also wanted to find something wonderful in her, but all I saw was the emotional every woman. You know, she's very complacent, really. You know, she's, she does try to help her boyfriend out, which is wonderful, you know, she wants to be a good partner, I get that, but she doesn't really extend beyond that. She is not layered at all, you know, and she just wants to be emotional and cry about stuff, cry all the time, you know, and that is just not something that I want to be seeing in a female character overall, but definitely not a Nightmare on Elm Street woman. Because all of yeah. them are not yeah. like that. Every other woman in that series is the exact opposite of that. So I found her just incredibly, incredibly disappointing. Yeah. So that's all I have to say on Lisa. Totally. Let's talk about Kristen. All right. So Kristen. Uh, so we see Kristen in Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Dream Warriors, and number four, Dream Master. And she's both been portrayed by Patricia Arquette in the, in the third film and Tuesday Night in the fourth film. And so the Kristen that we see in Dream Warriors is we see she's originally a very reluctant fighter against Freddy. Um, I did notice and made a note in one of my notes when watching these films that she spends a lot of her time yelling and screaming whenever she's brought into a Freddy dream <laughs> and she has to go up against Freddy. And she's such a good screamer, oh, though. I noticed that, too. She's fantastic. She, so piercing Yeah, she's really wonderful. good at screaming. She's really good at fighting against people, trying to put her to sleep. Um, 
And but I, I noticed that she relies really heavily on Nancy and her friends to help her in fighting friend and Freddy. So in a way, we kind of see uh, a female a female bring the group together, and instead of just one person fighting Freddy on the, on her own, it's a group of all of them all finding these abilities within themselves. And she uses her gift to pull people into dreams to help her fight with Freddy. But she does really heavily rely on Nancy. Um, so I feel like when you're watching the third one, you're just like, Kristen's really great, but we see that return of Nancy and we're like yes Nancy's back and she's fighting against Freddy again and then of course get really sad when she dies um but she, her ability allows the teens for the first time to fight Freddy on his own turf, which at the same time, too, I'm like, is this really good or bad? Like, it's really great when you bring him into our world to fight him, but then when you're fighting him in his world, like, his power is more increasing and growing so that you obviously have to have the abilities in your own dreams to be able to fight him. But really, in the, in the third one, I find that Kristen is all about using her strengths to form a team to go up against uh, Freddy. And so when I watch it in the fourth, when I watch her in the fourth film, uh, played by Tuesday Night, Kristen, Kristen instinctually knows that Freddy is back, and I love that because as that she represents that idea of, of a woman's instinct, of a woman's gut feeling about something, and when she tries to warn the other dream, the remaining dream warriors about this, no one believes her, and I feel like that's kind of what women kind of go through when we follow with our gut instinct or something that's telling us that something is not right about a situation, and we try to explain it or try to, you know, protect ourselves from it, we get told that we're being, as Kelly would say, hysterical. You need to, you know, or you need to calm yourself down. Everything's fine. We've defeated Freddy. He's not coming back. So I feel like I like Kristen more in the fourth film because she's more willing, because she's fighting against believing that Freddy is really dead. She really has to accept that he's alive. She's more willing to fight Freddy. She knows what she, her abilities, what allow her abilities to do is bring her friends into her dreams. But she also realizes that knowledge um, she knows so much about Freddy, she knows so much about her ability, and she knows that her ability will allow Freddy to bring in more targets for her. So she all uses that knowledge to inform her friends. And this is what we see when she transfers her gift over to Alice, and she gives this gift to Alice to allow her future friends to survive. So those are my thoughts on Kristen. Right, and you touched back on that feminist consciousness, right? That that paranoia she's like freddie's coming back like he's not done We're like girl settle down oh i love kincaid yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know she's like no it's happening and then isn't she fucking right right and then that's pretty much always the case you've listened to us women and we will tell you what's happening so kristen yes has that incredible game-changing power to bring people into the dreams to fight against freddie very unique and also very unique to transfer that power to alice I thought Patricia Arquette was a fantastic. She was fantastic in the first one. Tuesday night, eh, a little wooden performance, but I still enjoy her as a character. Um, the ending scene in Nightmare 3 with Nancy dying and like Patricia Arquette just bawling, I just, tears come to my eyes every single time. I find it absolutely heartbreaking. Um, but she's a, a strong overall character. Um, I'm, I am sad that she dies, but as per the rules, if you survive, you're going to have to die in the next one, give or take. Um, so, and also I find her death in Nightmare 4 to be one of the most just devastating and epic. <laughs> <laughs> but as we know, not everybody makes that alive when it is a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Alice, wake up! Alice, I'm so sorry. It was a mistake. I pulled you in. Alice comes to daddy. Leave her 
So let's move on to Alice, who, as much as I love Nancy, I really fucking love Alice, and I wish there was more information about Alice and more analysis on Alice, because she is wonderful. Well, maybe we'll start a trend. Like, people, let's start talking more about Alice. And her her transformation <laughs> in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. So when we first are introduced to Alice in Dream Master, and then we get to, we'll see her again in number five in the Dream Child, she is very mousy. She keeps to herself, and she really relies upon her daydreams um, because it's what she really wants to be in life: is attractive and stand up for herself against her drunken father. I think it's fascinating as, that she covers her mirror with images of her friends and family because she would rather focus on them than herself. And she doesn't want to look at her because what she because what she sees in herself, she doesn't want to face in reality. And so she wants to continue living in her dream world, which I think is so interesting that she likes to live in her daydreams, but eventually has to fight Friday in her nightmares. So when Alice receives um, Kristen's ability to bring people into the dreams and she starts to realize that her ability to bring people, bring more children into the dreams allows Freddy to continue his killing spree. The first thing that Alice wants to do, what she initially always likes to do is avoid. Um, avoid Freddy. She tries to stay awake. She doesn't want to go to sleep. She doesn't want to fight against him. And we see, and she, so she continues a trend and a pattern that she, we have seen in the beginning where she just like avoids herself and doesn't want, avoids all her issues, avoids her father, avoids actually stalking to the boy that she likes. But it's not until that her friends start dying and she takes on more of their abilities that we see Alice become more self-assured. She becomes more confident and she becomes actually a really good adversary against Freddy. Um, she becomes like Nancy. She becomes, she uses her wits to go up against Freddy and she even one of the first uh, females to physically fight Freddy in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Um, what's really interesting is that in an interview with Lisa Wilcox, who played Alice, um, she described Alice as an outcast that a lot of people can relate to. And in a way, I kind of related to Alice, too, in the beginning when it's uh, she's very like she keeps to herself. She's very mousy. She actually kind of reminded me of who I was in high school, where I just kind of kept to myself and was very you know shy and uh, did my own thing. And then how over the years, as I've found my love my uh, found my love of horror and found my self-assurance within myself that I'm becoming more like self-assured you know like fucking a <laughs> <laughs> you're so adorable just like Alice <laughs> <laughs> thank you so as Lisa Wilcox would say she said I immediately fell in love with the story of Alice she is a daydreamer who has kind of a pathetic at the beginning of part four and we think we all can relate to the feeling in some ways actually I was totally a wallflower in high school so there was a lot of myself in the character of Alice there's a lot of Lisa on that screen Wilcox also mentioned the character development of Alice saying, as an actress, though what made Alice remarkable is that audiences watch Alice become stronger and stronger as the movie plays along, and you can't help but be a part of her journey because she is so relatable. She really is, and the point on that and that Nancy is also super relatable is, is helpful, right? When we want to, you know, find something relevant to, to these final girls and these women in the movies, so... Yes, like I said, I really wish that there was more, you know, focus and analysis on Alice because I think she's damn wonderful and she is my favorite. Uh, she survives Freddy twice, doesn't bat an eye trying to defeat him in Nightmare 5. She's like, oh, yeah, Freddy's back. We got to, I got to ground the troops. We're doing this. Like, she knows. <laughs> Just talked about her transformation and it's so wonderful and I love watching it. And her mon, her getting ready montage, I'm gonna try not to get too pumped about Nightmare 4. Again, read my review about it because I love it so much. But her getting ready montage, I love it so much. And also, she's so beautiful. 
such a beautiful ginger. <laughs> you know, so her transformation in Nightmare 4 does carry into number 5, though I think that is probably the weakest Nightmare film. Um, she, she does fight to protect the innocence of her unborn child, though perhaps her strong, the strong, empowered woman from 4 is bogged down by her pregnancy, and she might not be able to fully, no longer be able to realize her powers because of it. So that she states in that movie, I was stronger than you. And some people think that maybe it's because, oh, now she's pregnant, so she doesn't think she's strong anymore. Um, but I think that it is because of her strength. You know, she's ready to take Freddy on again. Um, and Freddy knows. He knows that she is, like Jess said, this wonderful, strong adversary, this almost an equal to Freddy, and he knows he can't take her on again. So he goes after the baby as an easy target, which makes sense because Freddy is totally opportunistic, right? But she is still stronger than him. Unfortunately, it doesn't translate a lot in Nightmare 5, which is really too bad because I think she could have done more ass-kicking, but um, yeah. Alice is wonderful. Like you said in five, um, as her power grows, Freddy's obsessed with her and he does anything he can to try and unhinge her. And that's also, like you said, trying to steal her power away by turning her baby against her. Um, myself, like I, I agree, number five is a weaker film. I, I care less for this film um, because I feel like as Alice goes from fighting Freddy to survive and protecting her dreams and protecting her friends, uh, as we saw in the fourth film, we see her throw the fifth film, like we, especially at the end of the fourth film when like she talks about like, oh, my dreams are protected because... You know, like, I have something worthwhile to dream about. She's clearly talking about Dan. I'm like, well, now you've given away your your independence and your your, your sense of self because now you're dating this boy, this man, this boy. He's in high school. He's a boy. <laughs> He's a boy. Yeah, exactly. And we also see, like, when she talks about keeping the baby, especially when they bring up the fact, like, hey, like, you could end this by, you know considering an abortion and she says well no i'm gonna keep the baby because this baby is a part of her and dan and i was like okay i can accept that but it, it kind of sat it kind of sits with me the wrong uh, the wrong way and so we kind of see her accepting her her role as a mother and a caregiver which is kind of what we see from alice in the beginning of the fourth film but only with a different perspective and a different attitude now like yeah she's still stronger and she's still a fighter but she kind of returned to where she was before, where she was taking care of her father, and now she's taking care of her baby. Totally. Wonderful points. Wonderful points. Um, a final note on Alice is that, so in Nightmare 4, there's this really crucial portion of the fight. I mean, we talked about Alice being like an equal fighter and adversary. Yes, she's like the only woman to like actually... Go, like, or at least the first woman to combat like hand-to-hand -hand with him. I believe that happens in uh, Nightmare 6 uh, as well. But so in that fight, you know, Freddy appears behind Alice and says, you think you've got what it takes? I've been guarding my gay for a long time, bitch. This is really important and hilarious, but Freddy is acknowledging Alice's powers. He recognizes that she's not just a Nan another Nancy Thompson. She is showing, sorry, not another Nancy Thompson who, you know, used booby traps and everything to lure Kruger into the new world to be attacked. What he's facing is that potential equal, right? A gate master, a dream guardian whose abilities 
in this realm rival his own, right? So she is just like this wonderful um, equal. And I love that ending. I love the ending of Nightmare 4. And again, I really wish there was yeah. more analysis on Alice world created yes. people that are way smarter than me i will read it i will read it but it's not me to make it <laughs> for me to make it so you know yeah um yeah so that was our overall view on the women of nightmare on elm street Yeah, for sure. And we'll definitely have more conversations about this in the future. But in terms of looking at The Nightmare on Elm Street as a, as a series as a whole, myself, I would say that I think it's a great introductory series into the horror genre um, and definitely has a great legacy of a great horror villain. Um, we see an amazing characterization, a blend of story, um, characterization of uh, protagonists and side characters. Our villain is epic. He has, he has a very um, almost tragic background to his story as well. We got amazing female leads. They provide another type of a female role model that is not necessarily like a household name. We've got iconic lines, scenes, like just everything about the Nightmare on Elm Street series is just something great and wonderful to watch. Even music, like number like Nightmare on Elm Street Four just has nothing but good music throughout it. I think that's one of the best things about Four. <laughs> I told you, I know. Like our whole playlist, like half of our playlist is just music from that movie. Exactly. So good. Um, <laughs> and also, what's really interesting is that when you watch the first Nightmare on Elm Street that came out in 1984 and see the, the final one in 1988, it's a film that really can show how commercialization can change the original essence of a genre, of a genre-breaking film. So we do see this introduction of rubber reality, and you can tell from beginning to end how commercialization, the whole idea of success, um, excess and materialism really, walk, really goes into these films because Friday's kills become more and more epic and more and more excessive as the series progresses. And I think that's a really interesting uh, takeaway from that series as well, that it's just, uh, it was a product of its times. Oh, completely, completely. I think The Nightmare on Elm Street is an absolutely fascinating series. When you compare the big three, and I can't wait to get into the other ones, but it's so interesting, it's so well thought out, it's so well done. From the origins of the whole series, the creation of Freddy and Freddy as an icon, as a killer, as a slasher, as a villain, the cultivation of a new kind of final girl, the overall brand of Nightmare on Elm Street is goddamn iconic, it's long-standing, it's game-changing, and my absolute favorite franchise, Scream is my second favorite. <laughs> You know, and delving deeper into these, you know, classic horror franchises has been already a really interesting feat for me. I've read some really wonderful things. I've bookmarked a lot of other wonderful things to read for next time, and I'm really looking forward to the rest. Also, have I mentioned again that Friday the 13th turned out eight goddamn movies in the 80s? <laughs> Am I going to watch eight movies in one month? Yeah, we're going to do this shit. <laughs> So that ends our episode on the ever-wonderful and imaginative series, Nightmare on Elm Street. We want to thank Dance of the Dead for our intro-outro music, Robeast, Blair for his assistance in editing our episodes, and all of you listeners who have been supporting us for the past six months. Six months now, folks. 
Uh, we want to remind you to follow us on our website, which is spinstersofhorror.com, where you'll also, as a reminder, find reviews, blog posts, and more. We're on Facebook, uh, Spinsters of Horror. You can also find us on Twitter at, at @horrorspinsters, as well as Instagram at Spinsters of Horror. As well, we please ask that you, when you go on to Stitcher or iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to us, please rate and review us because it helps get us our, our rankings up in the list and introduce us to more other listeners that are wonderful out there. And a reminder, we now have merch. So you can go to our website. We now have a shop up on our website where you can buy our stickers as well as a link to our Tee Public store where you can buy one of our t-shirts or a hoodie or however you want that will make you keep you warm and support our spinsterness. <laughs> Excellent. So tune in next month where we kick off 2019. We're going to kick it off spookily. That's a word by looking into the world of the paranormal with a focus on haunted houses. Jess's favorite. Yes, <laughs> yes, scary houses. <laughs> yes. You know, what is the origin of the haunted house story and why is it a classic horror trope and horror scene? We will be looking at two films, the 1963 film, The Haunting, and the 2016 Thai West film, The Innkeepers. So until then, remember, the future of fear is female.